when it comes to adversity, a lot of people run away from it, but not today's guest. Today we have Sydney Schooner Ball. She's a retired firefighter and an award-winning author. She's here to tell us about her story of overcoming adversity. Welcome to the show, Sydney. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Absolutely, absolutely. So you sent this book to me in the mail and I was fascinated by it because oftentimes whenever I see firefighters, it's always a guy jumping out of a, a, a fire truck or putting out a fire or something like that. You know, and I'm down here in Florida. So from afar, I see things that goes on in California with lots of fires and it's mostly men. But you defy the odds. So if you can, tell me a little bit about why you chose to get into the firefighting um, career. And also tell us a little bit about your book. Well, thank you. Uh, I always say I didn't choose firefighting. It chose me. It found me. Um, I wrote the book uh, because, again, people were fascinated that a female seeing me on a fire truck sitting backwards all the way through my career going uh, and retiring as a captain. And I love to write. That was my second passion, love to read and write. So I kind of got the two together uh, working on the book before I retired. Firefighting is, uh, it, it, it is the most, uh, I say it's the best job in the world. It's not a job, it's a calling. And I fell in love with it. And I was not the person that grew up saying I was going to be a firefighter. I talk about it in the book. I had a job of the week club. Uh, I grew up in poverty. Uh, my sister raised me from the age of 13 and I'm in Florida as well. And I had a boyfriend from 17 years old. We are living together on and throughout the process of him finding himself, he found the fire service and I waited tables and put them through fire school. And in the meantime, I got into running and being physically fit. And I just fell in love with that. I was 22, started jumping rope like a boxer, which I still <laughs> love, it, love it, love it. So when uh, I was just trying to find myself job of the week club, uh, getting to be mid twenties, probably. And uh, his chief said, you know, I used to go and, and my thing was I did a lot of modeling in South Florida in, the, in, in my day, much younger. And um, one day uh, I went to, I always like to look cute, you know, going to the firehouse and sitting at the dinner table with all the guys and the chief. And, you know, I did that. And one, one day his, I was just talking about, you know, it's tough. I don't want to wait tables the rest of my life. I don't want to be a secretary. I don't want to be a bank teller. So his chief says, why don't you join the fire service? And I looked at him like, you're nuts. And I'm looking at this long table with all these guys and they all knew I worked out and we were friends. A lot of us firefighters are, you know, you become family, right. even the girlfriends and wives. But um, they said, yeah, you should do it. We'll help you. We'll help you train. We'll help you because you have to go to a uh, Florida fire college and get your state of Florida fire certificate to even begin testing with different departments. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked at them. Like, uh, no, thanks chief. But no, I, 
don't have any intention of doing ever anything, anything like that in my life. And as fate turns, you know, the wheels of fate turn. And um, a few months later, my boyfriend and I had, had broken up and I found myself in another state with my sister, Texas, for a couple months and hated it and said, I'm coming back to Florida and came back to Florida and said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I have no idea. Worked another bank job. And then I was out of money and I'm in the unemployment office and I see a sign says, uh, if you're an American Indian or of that descent, contact this number. I talk about it. I've been raised to get a job, not a handout, but I was desperate. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I had had a letter from my great, great grandfather. He couldn't read or write, had it uh, verify he was, in fact, a full-blooded Mohawk Indian before a judge with an X notarized. And my mother gave me the letter and I just put it in a, I put it in my lingerie drawer and said, I'm never going to look at that. I'm not going to use that. (laughs) Desperation. I called the number, met with a wonderful career counselor for the Seminole Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. Something I'd been ashamed of my whole life was my Indian heritage. Mm -hmm. And um, I hate to say it, but it was the golden feather I talk about in my book. And the lady was wonderful. I told her, you know, I want to be a firefighter, but I don't have a hundred dollars to go to the fire academy. I have no money. And first of all, I think she was shocked that I would even say I wanted to be a firefighter. And second of all, they helped me. I signed up for the fire academy and really from the first day on, and because I was so physically fit and loved that hardcore exercise, wanted a job to make a difference in people's lives. I was tired of just going through life, going, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, I'm in my later twenties at this point going, okay, now what am I going to do? And so I started the fire Academy and it was a process. Let me tell you, I was familiar somewhat because going to the firehouse, seeing the guys and hearing my boyfriend talk about what, what they did, but I passed, got my state of Florida fire certificate. And that allowed me to start calling different departments, looking on, uh, looking on the job search boards that were in the fire academy. And at that point, it was pretty um, primitive compared to today. There was no social media. There wasn't. Right, right. So you right. just called numbers, put your name on a list. And when they were testing, you got called and the test would be a physical fitness, a test, a physical agility, a written test, <clears throat> excuse me, and sometimes uh, psychological. And you would do that for every department. And it was uh, daunting and because I lived in South Florida, I kept my um, I kept my job search to like the Tri-County area. I see. Palm Beach and Broward uh, took me a year. And then I got hired after a year of testing with all these different departments. And believe me, it wasn't it wasn't easy with mostly men. You'd have 500 people sometimes in Palm Beach County at the time looking for a slot. Uh, but anyway, I got called a year later, Broward County fire it was called then broward ems was separate at the time i got hired and then uh started a five and a half week hardcore boot camp (laughs) we called it dix's death camp (laughs) the first group of 11 to do it and there were two women and uh nine men and uh it was tough it was july you know how hot it is it was hot yeah i was ready for it it was five and a half weeks and you went through, you th- I thought the state fire academy was tough, but that was, you know, kindergarten compared to this. And you, you just, you, you were tested on everything. And if you didn't make it, you, you know, you were 
thrown out and everything got harder. You learned the, the department's protocols. You just, it was just more intense training to prepare you. The last day of five and a half weeks, you had this test that lasted all day. And it was a series of continuous, uh, just continuous uh, events that you had to pass, you know, from, uh, you know, being in full gear, you know, grabbing a, grabbing a load of hose and climbing the stairs, seven floors, you know, doing push-ups, dropping the hose, picking it back up, uh, you know, just all the different things and you would get tested on that. And at the end you had to go through visibility and you had to find, uh, uh, I think they had like, coins or something like silver coin it, it, they were colored coins but you you knew how to find them you had to find them and bring them out did it pass and uh we all did and then uh it was just from then on it was it's been an amazing career uh not always easy at all and but it's been amazing um pull they had three shifts in the fire service because you work 24 hours there's a b and c which is alpha bravo and charlie and, I, and at that point, this is how silly it was back then. The training chief put all, all the names, uh, all the shifts in a hat. And you pulled you pull a number out or a letter out. And I got a shift for alpha. And that's so how it's, I there was no seniority or anything like that. Oh, no, we, no, because we all we were all probies. You know, we're probies for the first year. I, mean, I see. And so I pulled out alpha and for that first year, you get tested and you can get fired for anything. So you're really, you know, you're, you're just learning of trying to learn if you're smart, right? Just listen, learn and do the job. And for that first year, you would get tested. They would move you to a couple different stations. You'd run mm -hmm. calls. And, and then at the end of that year, you get tested again and you're a rookie. So now you're a rookie for five years. Before you become an old timer, so it's a process. It's constant. People don't know that. They don't realize how uh, intense it is. It's not like you go fill out an application and you know. But uh, but anyway, I had signed up for EMT school because I knew that was the golden goose. Uh, I would be the golden goose at that point. Right. At that point, Broward County Fire and Broward County EMS were separate entities, mm. and just being an EMT, which was you know first responder stuff, um, you know basic. You I was know, smart bandaging and things. So I got that and I got a raise. I mean, more money and uh, got that and, and then started started going for my associate's degree in fire science. More money, more job uh, eligibility to move up for the ranks. And so I started testing and I started testing for driver engineer. Uh, took that test every two years, was an acting driver for 12 years and an acting lieutenant uh, on a fire truck. And then lo and behold, in the 90s, Broward EMS and Broward uh, Fire merged and became Broward Sheriff Fire Rescue under the umbrella of Broward Sheriff. Uh, you have to understand in the 80s and 90s, everybody wanted to disband uh, Broward County because there were 28 different city fire departments within its borders. Wow. And so, yeah. So it was it was nuts. You had, you know, we we all hated each other. I, sh I laugh about it, but we we didn't really. But we, we you know, there was a lot of pressure that they I want to I want to unpack something um, here because your career. From the stories that I'm hearing is built and filled up with nothing but resilience. Going against the odds. You mentioned earlier that. Um, you were brought up 
with your sister. Can you tell me a little bit about growing up and where did that grit, where did that determination come from? Where did that resolve come from? Well, my parents, I was the last of four children and there were 16 years difference between my oldest sister and myself. Mm -hmm. The sister who raised me was uh, 11 years older and then I had, I had a brother who was six and a half years older. My parents, my father was born in 1917 the last wow. of 19 kids during the depression. And he used to say, you know, on a good day to go to school, he had a large sandwich. My mother was also born in 1922 uh, to a, uh, uh, in Kentucky to a preacher who rode, he did preaching on horseback in the hollers of Kentucky. And her mother died when she was seven. And mm -hmm. she went to Ohio to live with an older sister that had moved out uh, to try to get make a better life. And she met my father at like 16. And so that's how the story goes. They they were poor, uh, but proud people. I always say we, we had the cleanest house you could eat off the floor, but we were poor, you know, we had bread and milk. My father was a Mason, uh, brick Mason. And, uh, you know, I grew up poor. Uh, I too was a, uh, was molested when I was six. And uh, at that time had to go before uh, a judge in the courtroom, a little girl sitting in there looking at everybody and going through all that. It was, uh, it was really hard. Um, I talk about in my book, uh, how I think I became a firefighter is because when I was six years old, my brother was 12 and a half, we had no money for Christmas presents. So the fire department came to our house and they were wonderful. And my brother got a bowling set. <laughs> but I would say, huh, maybe somewhere in the deep, you know, crevices of my brain that that might have done it. But my mother was always uh, as poor as we are, as we were. She would always leave out a biscuit and water gravy for uh, anyone who was homeless. Or they called them hobos back then would come mm -hmm. by and, and could have food. Uh, but that's how I grew up. And then when I was 13 years old, we would go back and forth because my older sister, who ended up becoming my guardian, she got married to a native Floridian in Cocoa, Florida. And I loved it. Every winter we'd go there and it was just like paradise to me. I loved it. I loved the people. There were so many different ethnic, uh, ethnicities of people, whereas where I grew up in Ohio, there was not. And so that's where it comes in where I said being an Indian, American Indian was not, it was hard. You know, I was called uh, Pocahontas and my brother who was six foot eight until the day he died, he was called Squaw Man. And, uh, Anyway, uh, my sister said, how, how did being called Pocahontas affect you? You know, it, you know, it, it, it didn't make me feel great, but I didn't really, you know, I just thought, whatever you want to call me, you're calling my six foot eight brother Squaw Man, and he never had a problem with it ever. He was mm -hmm. like, whatever, yeah, I'm Squaw Man. So <laughs> I, I didn't really, you know, I, I just thought, well, it's just mean kids, and, and, you know, that's just the way kids can be. They can be <laughs> mean. Before you got into the firefighter department, you mentioned that um, you went through a phase of unemployment and um, you had to tap into your uh, Indian heritage. Um, sounds like a bit of um, humility had to kick in for yourself. It, it and did. and um, you was kind of resistance towards it. Can you talk a little bit about just what that period was like for you and now having to tap into that and looking back at it, right? How, how that decision changed your life? Well, 
growing up, and I mean, I'm blonde now, but I, I was dark haired then, uh, long dark hair. And uh, I was ashamed of it. And, and I don't say that lightly. And I hope people understand that as a little kid, you know, I'm growing up in Northern Ohio, where uh, it was just kind of, I say in my book, the land of the blue eyed, blonde haired cornfields people. And, you know, my father was very racist for, for being an Indian and he looked just like an Indian brave, but he, he had very strong opinions and, you know, you didn't, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, diversity there. Mm -hmm. um, so because our family, you know, there was the whispers, we were poor, we were Indian, you know, there was just a lot of uh, negativity whispering. Um, I went to church. My parents did not go to church. Uh, my mom's dad, I said, was a preacher. My dad's sister was a Pentecostal faith healer, and she used to take me to church, and I'd watch that whole thing. But church for me was wonderful because I had a love of music, and I can sing. So I sang in all the church choirs. You can sing? Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> love it. So um, I went to, uh, I sang in all the church choirs. But it was really difficult, but... What happened to me is when my sister and brother-in-law asked if I could come and live with them, they would they would become my legal guardians and I could go to school. And then from then on, because, they, uh, you know, up until then, 11 years old, we go back and forth. I'd start school, obviously, in the wintertime. And then when it became spring, I was yanked out. Very tough time. So when I was 13, they became my legal guardians and I officially uh, could stay in Florida. Uh, my life changed. It changed. Uh, and then I always kept it. I mean, I would say I was American Indian, but I never kind of made it uh, the topic of conversation. I just went around, went about my life. Gotcha. But then when I, it was the strangest twist of fate ever, because this, this letter I had in a drawer and I find myself at an unemployment office, which I had never collected unemployment before in my life. And I always say I had a job of the week club. I, I waited. I was a bank teller in high school. I went to high school and there was a bank teller DACA pro, program, waited tables. And I said, I did secretarial work. I, you know, um, I talk about I did modeling. So I would always say, yeah, I'm a waitress model, a, a secretary model, a, a bank teller wannabe model. You know, those are, <laughs> those are jobs that I did because I always worked. And I learned from all of that. But in the meantime, they weren't fulfilling. And I knew there would come a point in time when it just wasn't going to be enough. I, I always I, I, I didn't want to end up 25 years later with my nose stuck on the glass window of a high rise overlooking Fort Lauderdale Beach going, wow, is that all there is? Right. Right. So, so you retired and you turned firefighting into a career. Can you tell us? What was the most rewarding aspect of being a firefighter for yourself? Being a firefighter, there are several, but probably the most, and, and it sounds the most simplistic, is the ability to, to have a positive outcome on people's lives. Uh, having the ability to turn the worst day of their lives into uh you know, their crisis, mitigate that crisis and have a positive outcome for them. Literally, you know, you couldn't save everyone. And I say that on my book, but it's quite rewarding to show up and be able to control, take, take charge of a situation, calm that person or put out the fire, whatever the situation may be, car accident, medical call, fires, uh, 
to be able to turn their worst day and calm them, take care of them, and uh, you know have the, the, them uh, transported, whether I was on a rescue or a fire truck, because I did both, um, and, and, and turn them over to the ER and, and then go back and see them. I would go back and sometimes, you know, the ERs, you don't get out of an ER immediately anyway. So sometimes as I'm, when I was on rescue, I would always go by and see them. And they were, and, 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 you know, when they were, and they would come into the station sometimes when they were, when they were completely uh, released and healed and they would come in the station. It was wonderful to have them come in and, and say, thank you so much for saving my life. (laughs) I was going to ask you, is there any specific story throughout your career that like sticks out to you the most? There are so many. Um, there's just so many wonderful ones. Um, probably, probably for me, it, it came at the end of my book, and it's not so much them coming into the station, but as you can imagine, um, I was one of two women to make it in the fire service in, in mm-hmm. 1987. And I moved up the ranks. I drove all the fire trucks, ladder trucks, tanker trucks, became a Lieutenant and then blow and, and was an EMT. And then lo and behold, 15 years into my career, uh, I went to paramedic school because we merged and in order, right. I love medicine, but I never went into it thinking I wanted to be a doctor, but paramedic school is not for sissies either. So <laughs> I got my paramedic and then immediately was on a rescue that ran 25, 30 calls in a shift. So uh, I, I got my chops, but long story, my career, I was a captain. I was back on a fire truck and I was in an area where they had a retirement community and they had, uh, I was working a car accident and I basically was getting out and I noticed these three elderly ladies on a bench on a corner of a busy four corner uh, street in Fort Lauderdale. And they're just looking at me and I'm getting out of the truck and I'm kind of, uh, uh, I'm, I'm have uh, ordering my crews what to do, put the car fire out, get the patient packaged. And they could just keep looking at me and they're staring at me. So when I was finished, I took my coat off and, and my crew was packing up the hose and things. So I just took my coat off, my helmet off, put it on the seat and walked over to them and just said, you know, good. Hi ladies, how are you doing? And I stuck out, stuck out my hand, shook their hands and they were just like so animated and just like, Oh my God, Oh my God, we are so proud of you. We're just watching you. We all wanted to do that in our day. Mm. As women, we weren't allowed to do become firefighters or police officers. We, had a, we could be homemakers, teachers, uh, secretaries, but which are all honorable in their own right. And I say that, but we were never able to do what you do. And just watching you, we we're just so honored. And so I just, you know, shook their hands and said, well, thank you. I'm, I'm so, so honored to be able to do this. And this is, this is what I hope for the next generation of young girls, awesome. little girls. So you know, that would, that stuck with me. Um, and, and going to the schools as well, little girls would cry and, you know, and I would just tell them, you can be a firefighter too, you know. Awesome. So I wanted to follow up and piggyback to something you just said. So granted, you're in a profession that most women aren't into. Being in that, and it's out of your book, um, Sister in a Brotherhood. What was that like for that length of a career to be 
a woman surrounded by men every single day, firefighting and things like that. And I actually that as in like for me, being in the Marine Corps, we have a band of brothers and we always look out for each other. We rag on each other a little bit, but we always take care of each other and have each other six. What was that like for you being in that atmosphere? It was as just as you described being in the military. However, as I'm sure you encountered as well, people, maybe not because you're a man, but you know, people would test you. Mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of funny because there was word that the other woman and I, and she was a triathlete. And then we had a third woman join, not in our group, but the next, next band of uh, recruits, uh, she was a trapeze artist in the circus. So you can imagine how fit she was. So we had all these fit women and trust me, they never changed any of the requirements, which I think I cannot stress that enough uh, for us as women. So people don't get the wrong idea. We did everything the men did as we should, as in firefighting um, or a job like that. I believe you have to, it's insulting to change the requirements. So you don't come in on even footing. So the guys all whispered, you know, telephone, tell a fireman. So the same, <laughs> they kind of had an idea. But that isn't to say uh, I, I got put into a station with a group of uh, guys that they did. They, they, they held me to the fire, but they, they, they taught me. I learned. I knew they had my back. I was allowed to make mistakes. Um, and they trusted me. And as I got more and more experienced and word got out and confidence and more training and education, you just find yourself, uh, word gets out. You work calls with people and they like what you did. Not everyone does. And certainly as an officer, there were people that, you know, they're not going to, they might've been upset because I took all the tests and made officer and they didn't. Uh, you always have that. And as a female, I will tell you, draw your line in the sand. Um, tell let let it be known in an open uh, at the at the table or wherever. Let it be known what your line in the sand is, because people, especially back then, men they you know they would say things, and you know I I didn't cringe. It was before the Me Too. I didn't cringe at everything. I had been, I was almost I was thirty when I got hired, and I turned thirty one two months later. Mm -hmm. So I was not eighteen, and I had worked and been out on my own since I was sixteen years old. <laughs> So I had been around a lot of crazy stuff um, and dealt with a lot of um, men on different levels. Gotcha. So I was pretty confident at that point in my life what I would take, what I would, what was appropriate and what was not. Um, I try to teach the women that that came in after me because that you know, I would say I'm one. Of, I'm 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 not a man. I love being a woman. However, I'm a part of this crew, and as this crew, we're working together. And this is what's appropriate to me. And this is what is not. And if that is what you're going to talk about, you need to take it outside or somewhere, but not around me. Got it. So I imagine that you've seen a lot of things. And as I think about that, you know, I think that I would imagine that could take a, a toll on like your mental health or going home after seeing some crazy things and going home to dealing with that. At any point, did you ever experience anything that you can't believe what you just saw and it stuck with you, whether it was a person or, you know, a situation or something like that that affected you while you was uh, with the fire department? 
my, throughout my whole career. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was very lucky. I met my husband in the fire service, actually, mm -hmm. and we've been married 33 years. Mm -hmm. So it was really, and we don't have children. We have German shepherds instead. <laughs> <laughs> we met later in life and we decided to go that route. But, you know, um, I learned that there are ghosts in your memory banks that will always stay with you. Uh, we don't talk about it to civilians. They always ask and you don't. I tell in my book some crazy stories, as you can tell, as you've read, I'm sure. Um, truth is stranger than fiction. And when we all get together, we all start talking about it amongst ourselves, which is funny and sad or whatever. But it's right. how you choose to deal with it. Uh, some have some deal with it in a positive way. I look at it like I exercised a lot, took good care of myself. I was lucky enough to realize that you can't save everybody. Um, you just can't. Um, not you know, we're, it, that's up to the higher power or whatever uh, you believe or not believe in, but you do the best you can with your crew. Uh, there are stories and people and events and places and things that come back. Um, in fact, there's a chapter in my book that says uh, when one of the, we got together and one of the uh, female paramedics said to me, uh, you know, do you think we have PTSD? Because I can't even drive on 95. I can't do it because of all the stuff the wrecks that I've seen and everything. And I said, what are you kidding me? We all have it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, it's something that it can either, it can cripple some people and we've had people, uh, cause I am working on a couple more books now, two more books, actually one novel and one not, but one on PTSD. Um, people that have come to me and said, you, you know that, you know, there's a lot of us that have suffered tremendously and uh, they either can get help or, you know, sometimes they don't. They fall into really bad habits. And uh, we just had recently a very dear, dear person we worked with commit suicide, wow. uh, as you know. I mean, and that's the downside. And people, you know, it's just coming out for first responders, really, um, that we have uh places we can go to to get help. There's lots of help on, out there, uh, but it was never talked about. And when I was working until recently, it was basically you ran these calls and it was like, suck it up. That's your job on to the next. And it wasn't, uh, it's like, we're the heroes. How, why should we have PTSD? Why should it, you know, we're the strong ones. And then uh, as time has gone on, thankfully it's now recognized uh and people are choosing to get help or if they don't know where to get it, it's on there. Um, I had, I did a podcast with a, a group called under the shield and they mm -hmm. specifically anonymously do fantastic work. If you call people or their families call and um, it's out there, but I chose to kind of write about it and, and just realize that those people will probably remain in my brains and, a lot of my colleagues will say, yeah, you know, when I drive by this place, I, it automatically comes back to me because I remember this happened here or that happened there. So that's all I can say is it, it sticks with you. Uh, you have to find a way to get it out, whether it's exercise, seeking help, whatever will be in a positive direction. Absolutely. So, Cindy, you were one that was in a uh, high leadership position. Yes. You can talk to us about for our listeners, give us some leadership advice, either from the firehouse um, throughout your career and what 
some of us could uh, take away from your experiences? Well, I believed in uh, going, getting the experience. I didn't want to sit as I came up through the ranks uh, and then I became what they called an old, an old timer. Um, I could bid slow stations, you know, slower stations and, and all of that. But I wanted to move up through the ranks. So I say go for the busy stations, whatever, go get the experience. Uh, learn both the good and the bad from people that you've worked for, worked under and try to develop your style. Uh, be confident, show confidence, even if you're not, uh, it will come. Uh, you know, confidence and experience will, will, you know, the competence in doing your job and learning and being a sponge and listening to people, observing, uh, will, will aid you in your, in your confidence. Um, and and, and have, have a thick skin. I mean, I, I'm one of those people that say, you know, have a thick skin and, and just have it in your mind. You're not going to let anybody or their rude or obnoxiousness keep you from what your goals are, whatever the career is. And it's particularly in a male dominated uh, career. And I say that with kind of a grain of salt because people ask me about these crusty old chiefs I worked with that, you know, there were no women. And you know what? They had my back. They saw how hard I worked and they were, they were sometimes better than some of the younger guys that would test me. And then as I got experience uh, and, and the guys, I got very comfortable. You know, we, we were, were a family and I would breathe a sigh of relief when I worked at certain stations because mm -hmm. some of the guys had so much experience in other areas that were valuable in construction, uh, welding, uh, Lots of things that, that when you're on a scene are beneficial. Uh, my word was obviously as a captain, as a lieutenant was the last, but I never hesitated to listen to advice from people that had far more experience in other areas. And even on a rescue, I had paramedics. They were groundbreaking paramedics. Mm -hmm. My hat's off to them. I learned so much from these men and women that they were paramedics back in the day when there were two of them on a truck and they ran constantly. And some went on to become doctors, nurses. They were a lot of more nurses. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, nuts if you didn't listen to them. And and I learned from them, but the bottom line is, is um, have the confidence, the experience, listen, go both good and bad and, and, and constantly try to go to school, educate yourself um, and you will find your way and be kind. Be kind and have empathy. Uh, they taught us that, but you must be empathetic. And that that's uh, that includes, um, you know, people you work with. And as I got older and, and I had young kids on my truck and I talk about one story about a young man, you know, station duties. He was assigned to clean bathrooms. He came to me and he didn't know how to clean a bathroom. Nobody had ever taught him that. His mother mm -hmm. did it. And he didn't want to be embarrassed because you know how firefighters, well, maybe you don't, but I'm sure in your, your line of work as well, you know, people, you take a lot of ribbing and yeah. it would have been humiliating for him. He was a, he was a really nice young guy. And I always laugh because I grew up in a house with no inside bathroom. So I actually love bathrooms. And like, come, come with me. And uh, I go through the process of my book of like, come on. Uh, grab some gloves, grab this, grab that. And I showed him how to spot 
clean a bathroom, you know, like it's nobody's business. <laughs> Six months later, I saw him and he pulled me aside and he said, Captain, I just really want to thank you because you took the time to show me and not humiliate me. So that's what you do. It's those little key stories and, that um, shows real signs of uh, leadership, though, man. Little things like that. Yeah, it's not always the big calls. It's sometimes just yeah. showing, you know, compassion that is a, and some empathy and, and to, to life skills that, you know, the new generation really didn't learn. I mean, a lot of mm -hmm. them did not know those things. Mm -hmm. um, I was not mechanically inclined. I talk about my brother who could take apart carburetors, took apart engines uh, when he was 16. You know, I couldn't didn't do any of that, but boy, did I learn from the guys, you know, putting on my goggles because every Monday, you know, you're underneath an engine with goggles and, uh, you know, on a wood contraption with wheels, checking fluids, checking hoses, uh, checking all the mechanical components in addition to all the equipment. And it took hours, sometimes on a ladder truck, it did take hours. So, you know, I had to learn how to do all that. And so, you know. Was I the best? No. <laughs> uh, and I say that, was I the best officer? No. But I tell you, I worked with some extraordinary people that were officers, some that were drivers, some that were, you know, firefighters, and they taught me and I'm, I'm grateful to them. And so in writing this book, I just want women and, and young men I mentored too. So speaking, speaking of this book, if you can tell our listeners, what will they get when they pick up this book and um, <laughs> and hear your story? Well, I tell everyone it's not war and peace. It's an easy read. It is also not a book of just war stories, as you know. Uh, some people like to just tell that. I tell my story, what they'll get out of it is hopefully an insight into what it was really like as a, uh, a rare female back in 1987 to go through the process, to become a firefighter, uh, to be, you know, move up the ranks to driver, engineer, lieutenant, and retire as a captain. Um, and, and the adversity and, and how hard it is, but to be focused and to have uh, confidence in your abilities, no matter what, um, what what your what your goal in life is it can be a lot of different things but mine was firefighting and uh you know and paramedic uh being a fire rescue uh, civil servant and and serving the public and i hope they go for it i i hope that it's, it's positive it's not a negative book it's a positive story well i got my coffee here um also thank you for the note um i truly truly appreciate it and thank you for um just being transparent and sharing your story. I really um, appreciated that. So Sydney, as we get ready to get wrap up and get out of here, I try to uh, have um, our listeners hear some of um, your stories and how you could help them with your story. If, if there were some key takeaways that our listeners could take away from your life, from your experiences, what are some of those things that you like to leave with them? I'd like to leave with them something my mother told me and i always say this my mother was uh she only was went to sixth grade because she got rheumatic fever back in the day and she was married and had a child by 17. but you know they had no money for me to go do anything 
But she always said, you know, if you want to work, if you work hard enough, you can do what you want to do. You will get there. But she said, listen, you take it day by day because you break it down into uh, segments. And if you start what you what you think your goal is, if you start something, whether it's starting school, uh, classes, whatever it is to reach that goal, you take it day by day. And you know, before you know it, five years is over. It's come and gone. And look where you'll be. But if you don't, and you talk about it, and just think about it, and don't do anything about it, five years is also going to come and go. And you're going to still be talking about it, doing what, whatever it is that you're doing at the time. And, you know, I thought that was such smart advice from, you know, my mother. Like I said, she she was born and raised in, born in Kentucky and had a really difficult life. But she had more common sense than probably most people I ever met in my life. And I would carry that advice to people because I think today – Maybe it's just me, my perception and being older, old, <laughs> young, <laughs> older and lived a lot of life and, and said, listen, it's not going to be easy, people. It's not easy. But if you want to prepare yourself for a better life, you can either choose to be a victim or you can choose not to. And that includes being a product of, you know, divorce, uh, whether it's molestation, whatever tragedies, because we all have them. <laughs> not I don't know anyone regardless of their money situation that hasn't undergone adversity, right. uh, whatever it is, but a lot of people give up and they just think it's too hard. And I encourage them. Yeah, it's going to be hard. <laughs> There's going to be days. <laughs> I'll tell you what, being be a paramedic after 15 years on the job and, and not being, you know, I was not a straight A student in school. I struggled. And I talk about that. I didn't. I had to go back to school ten years after I would graduated to get my high school diploma, mm -hmm. because I was too busy hitchhiking to Cocoa Beach. I had no time to go to high school, <laughs> but I did it. And because I knew if I didn't, I'd be saying, "Do you want fries with that for the rest of my life?" Right. And I didn't want to right. do that. So those are some of the lessons I hope that help people. So Sydney, what is it that you're doing these days now that you're retired? And if anybody wanted to uh, work with you, book you on a podcast, book you for a speaking engagement or anything like that, how can I get a hold of you? Well, I'm doing some things now because retirement, I talk about that and I'll just say it briefly. Uh, I went through a lot of depression and, a lot, and I talk about it in my book. It was not easy for me. I went from a career I love that defined me to all of a sudden having what everybody dreams of, a, you know, a fantastic husband that I love dearly being retired with the ability to do what we wanted. And I went through uh, the depths of hell, really. It took me about five years to get out of it. And writing is what really uh, helped me get out of it, that I, I wasn't done. Uh, what I'm doing now is uh, I have two books, actually. I'm doing one on uh, PTSD uh, called Should Time Heal? And I started working on it. And then because I've been an avid reader since I was four, I started a novel and it's uh, Jake's story, you know, Hero to Zero. And I'm kind of working on a group of uh, kind of retired vagabond characters that are firefighters and whatnot and developing their characters and how they decide to make a difference. So I'm working on that. And that's been um, extremely, you know, 
beneficial to me creatively. Uh, and other things I'm doing, I'm doing podcasts as well as um, I'm doing book signings. Um, I'm actually uh, sent out a bunch of books to it's called the Women's uh, Firefighting Alliance out in West, uh, the West uh, part of the country, California, mm-hmm. Washington State and that. And I'm excited to hear some feedback on their on their uh, potential uh, recruits for as women for firefighters and see how. Nice, they like nice. But I want to get it out there. Uh, people are like, oh, it would be a great screenplay or oh, maybe it'll make you rich or famous. I didn't write the book to be rich or famous. I'd rather be rich than famous. But if I can make a difference, that's what I set out to do is make a difference um, and really encourage young women, young men. I think the world is lacking right now in a sense of commitment to being a civil servant, no matter what that is, if it's, uh, you know, fire rescue, uh, military or whatever. I think the world, uh, the structure, and I think, I think a lot of people out there are looking for that. And if I can impart some wisdom, talking to people, uh, sending them my book, having them read my book, um, I, I de- I'm delighted to do that. And maybe that's my second, that's my second career in life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they can reach me at uh, at uh, my website, which is uh, you know sisterandabrotherhood.com. Uh, they also can reach me uh, fivealarmhealth at gmail.com. Uh, I also have a Facebook page as well. Facebook, Instagram. I do have a social media publicist and she's young. So she gets me involved and keeps me up to date with all of this. So she's putting together Instagram, Pinterest. Uh, I am on LinkedIn and it's all either sister. It's at sister and a brotherhood or at Cindy Schooner ball, but I prefer my business as sister and a brotherhood. So well, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, sharing your book. Um, it has been total, total, total honor just to hear your story. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I look forward to speaking to you uh, further. Absolutely. <laughs> Until next next time, guys, we drop episodes weekly. We out of here. Can't complain at all. Couple dollars in my pocket, no income and go. Been working on my body, getting healthier Thank God for clarity